Hi, I'm Jerry House. You know, I've known these shady ladies for a very long time, and I love to hear their stories, but you have to take them with a grain of salt. Now, these tales and opinions are not for the faint of heart, and this podcast is not suitable for children, but then neither is the music business. So light one up and lighten up, because you're listening to the Shady Ladies of Music City. Is this on? Are we doing it now? What are we saying again? I'm Evelyn. And I'm Susan. Some people refer to us as... The Shady Ladies of Music City. So we have our own t-shirts now that say, light one up and lighten up. I'll tell you what I'm shocked at is having merch. After all these years of getting other people's merchandise and having tons of, you know, Remember other people out there selling the merchandise yeah, like t-shirts, a crazy designing t-shirts and doing everything that you can do to a t-shirt, but actually having our own t-shirt. Actually, I did have a t-shirt. For, it was uh, ESPR, our softball team. <laughs> and we had red t-shirts with white letters. But these are cooler because they're just black. Yeah, these are and really white. cool T-shirts. I like them a lot. You can get them on our website. You can get them online. You can which get is them. the website. <laughs> you can get them if you uh, know someone or my Facebook page. <laughs> if you're actually on one of my friends list, you know, www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com. Well, in terms of scandals and, uh, what are we calling it? Damage, Damage control. control. Well, I had an interesting story I could tell. I have several interesting stories that we can talk about. But remember when they came out and said Randy Travis was gay? This was a really, you know, Nashville was such a different world back then. And everybody was, you know, so far back in the closet. There were a lot of gay people, but nobody ever talked about it. And Randy wasn't gay. I'm not implying that whatsoever there was no closet situation for him uh but somehow or another it was reported or something it was during crs country radio seminar so it was about the most pivotal 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 minute in uh launching an artist and randy was still a relatively new artist so he decided all on his own that he was going to address it at crs and he took the stage and, you know, said that he had heard this and it wasn't true. And it was really a, a very upsetting um, situation. But when I was looking through some press clippings for uh, today, I saw that it was the first time gay had ever been said at CRS as a statement that anybody talked about being gay. They probably never called it anything. Well, they just didn't talk about it. It wasn't a factor. Everybody was so far back in the closet that even though, you know, a lot of, there were a lot of gay people around at that time. Well, there were a lot of gay people around and we knew them all. Not necessarily the artists, but the people in the business. Yeah. And uh, they were petrified to come out. And if somebody, you know, was gay, their career was fucked. And there were some great singers, Ty Herndon. He was just a monster. I loved him and his singing. And, you know, he was gay and he got hosed. And a lot of the people in the publicity departments, now there are a lot of... Um, well, a lot of people are out in Nashville now. It yeah. doesn't matter whatsoever. A lot of the strongest people in the business in terms of controlling the money and the deals and stuff and are the gay. Art and the But that wasn't the case the back then. 
Nobody would uh, cop to it, and I had forgotten that until I read it this morning that it was the first time anybody had ever dressed, addressed the, the topic of gayness. But I think that they pretty much tried to call every big guy gay, that Randy. Clint Black, they said, was having a big affair with his fiddle player. Now, Kenny, <laughs> you know, Who? Kenny. Oh, yeah. Uh, but Kenny's you know, th- about as gay as... Uh, but it's interesting because it was Brad the guys... Pitt. It was also the guys who worked out. You know, Randy was fanatical about working out in his body. Kenny's fanatical about his body. But yet all the gay people that I know in Nashville, none of them have those great bodies. So I don't know why they would think that the ones that That's do. That's not true. Let's, well, we don't well, have to mention. No, but, but name one. Or, or tell me who has like this drop-dead chiseled body that he would like Kenny. Kenny has the, the best body so, in town. I mean, but he's not gay. No. No, and that's the point. You know, the gay people don't have those bodies. I don't know. We don't go to the gym anymore. It's You know, I go to the gym, but I don't... We used to go to the gym, and, you know, you would see a lot of people there, but you don't go to the gym at all anymore, so you don't see any of the chiseled in stone people down there. In the music business? Yeah, and I just... <laughs> I, uh, I tend to ignore them because it's just so... Uh, intimidating for me who's worked out all my life and then I you know these little winks come dusting into the gym and they've worked out for a month and you know they look like Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) I come waddling in I look like Dale Evans horse buttermilk (laughs) but the funny thing about the story with Randy addressing this at CRS and then we were immediately going to Washington. We were flying up to Washington for some event or something. Welcome home, the troops. No, no, this was like a different kind of thing. I think it might have been like the Easter egg hunt or something because I'm thinking, of, well, thinking of the timing of CRS and what time of the year it was. But what happened was uh, Lib Hatcher, who was Randy's wife slash manager, inv- uh, decided to invite Michael Campbell along, who was Ricky Van Shelton's manager and who was gay. So we leave this scandal at CRS saying that we um, that Randy's not gay and, you know, he says it as the first time on stage. And then when we leave, we take a gay guy with us. <laughs> but we had a good time. Well, Sam Hunt is like the best-looking guy that's come into Nashville in the last 500 years. And he also has, like, this phenomenal body. And he can also sing and he can also rap. And so, you know, they quickly put them down and, oh, he's gay. Who cares? He's gay. And God forbid if you're a lesbian. I mean, you just didn't even have a Oh, clamor. Katie Lang. That, that destroyed it. And she was like the best interpreter of songs that I've ever heard in my life. She was like an unbelievable singer and interpreter. And because she was gay, she got fucked in country music. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it was just really weird. I represented Holly Dunn, who was gay. And um, I had Shelby Lynn, who was gay. And then... But Shelby one was of, married when she first came Yeah, here. but, I mean, this was years later. But one of the big deal managers in town to this day, so I won't say who it is, he was representing this other singer who was coming down from New York for just a little foray into country music, and she was gay. So you know that that and was very openly gay. That was meant with, like, massive resistance. 
but he had told her manager that she shouldn't they shouldn't hire me to do PR because I was like a dyke house because I had these uh, gay uh, clients and and um, people and that was working the, for you. Yeah, and, and people who worked for me and whatever. I remember um, yelling at him at fanfare backstage in the tent. <laughs> I don't know. I ran mostly into rednecks and peckerwoods. I ran into a couple of gays and had a couple of really good friends when we were all young and doing publicity together. Major laughs. And I had no idea what was going on. They knew much more because they had all gone to Belmont and they had learned the music business. And I didn't even know there was such a thing as taking the music business. And then there was the George Jones car crash. <laughs> that was a huge That event. was the biggest nightmare we had to hide. Well, and, you know, ignorance is bliss because uh, for a big part of the time, I didn't think that he had been drinking. And, huh. you know, I was really the front person saying that he was sober. Um, and then once we kind of figured out I was lying, Susan's boyfriend at the time started calling me Pinocchio. Actually, it was me. Well, and maybe she it was would Susan. be telling the stories on. Oh no, George hasn't you know drunk a half a quart of vodka in twenty years, and I would go. <laughs> <laughs> well, her boyfriend at the time bought me all these Pinocchio gifts. That's like right, little, like the Pinocchio watch and uh, Pinocchio doll, a Pinocchio. Boy, now they could have that Amazon thing, you know. <laughs> What is that, you know, that answers your phone and all? I mean, that... Oh, sorry, or whatever. No, uh, you know. But when George uh, was in the accident, uh, my mother was alive, as was Susan's mother, and um, we were going to meet for brunch. It was a Sunday. I think it was a Sunday. During the week. I don't know. I didn't know any We were going to meet for brunch somewhere. And uh, I had been talking to George on the phone that morning, um, we had just finished the um, album, um, The Cold Hard Truth. And he knew it was really good, and we knew it was really good, and it was a really exciting thing to... And, and won a Grammy. But, you know, it was like we had just gotten the final mix like that, you know, the night before. So he was very excited about it, and, I, and we were talking on the phone about how happy he was. And uh, I didn't think he was drunk having this conversation with him, you know, literally 15 minutes before he got into the crash. Because, you know, you talk to somebody for so long and they tell you they don't drink and, you you know, you listen to them and after a while... And he truthfully hadn't been drinking, you oh, know, think, in those oh, those years, you they know, mainly. He did. Nancy just hit it. Well, she hit it pretty good considering I saw the guy every day. But, you know, sometimes he would fall off the wagon. But nonetheless, I didn't think he had that Fall off the wagon. <laughs> One time he was in front of his building and he fell off the porch and broke his arm. <laughs> but he wasn't drunk. He was just clumsy. He was drunk. No. Uh, so in any event, I had been talking to him. And the next thing, I'm go we're leaving to go to uh, lunch and uh, the phone rings and it's Nancy or one of the daughters saying that, you know, he'd been in a car crash, but they didn't know where. Because after he talked to me, he called his stepdaughter and ended up getting into the crash then. But nobody knew where he was. 
So we all took off on, you know, uh, where I live in Brentwood and where they live in Franklin, went on 65 and went on some of the back roads. And it turned out he had been, he crashed on Highway 96 very close to their house. So, but the traffic was all backed up and Nancy had to run like a few miles to, uh, to get to the car. And he was under the bridge drunk. They found a fifth of something in the car. But we actually, you know, then got to the hospital, which was Vanderbilt. And uh, truthfully, you know, nobody really thought he was going to make it. And it turned into just, you know, a huge, you know, press nightmare. and Days uh, of waiting. This, the uh, the inquirer tried to sneak into the room where he was with a camera to take pictures of him. Because yeah, the final pictures before he dies. And Oh, I mean, who else came sneaking in there? Oh, yeah, it was a real security thing of, of uh, trying to protect his privacy. The really <laughs> sad me thing. me Evelyn doing the security. And then the really sad thing was how many stars, you know, or singers and friends came by to say goodbye. You know, and maybe it's a Southern thing. It wasn't something that I grew up with where you would sort of infringe, you know, not infringe, but, you know, go to a hospital where somebody's, you know, been in a tragic accident and... But they, they came, George Strait blowing from Texas and came, Randy came, Travis, uh, Merle Haggard. I mean, just a ton of people, you know, I, I can't remember. It was wild when they all came and they come at night and, you know. And, you know, it's so sad that, you know, they're just broken hearted looking at, you know, at George laying there. Um, even his sons who he hadn't talked to in 20 or, you know, 30 years came. But meanwhile, George lived. <laughs> yeah. And the press went crazy, and the album was just an absolutely incredible album. So, yeah, and you know he, you know, he was he was such a uh, a difficult personality, and with all the drugs and the drinking and the IQ and talking like a duck and everything that did you know, you know about goes the talking along like a duck? with talking about George, um, he it, singing was so easy for him. That and people took such advantage of him because he was such a mess that he recorded so many shitty songs in the course of his career and recorded so many albums, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of albums. They would just prop him up, you know, in front of a mic stand and have him sing, you know, everything and anything. And, you know, he had huge success and then he had years of just kind of maintaining. And then when we did this album, The Cold Hard Truth, and, and having that conversation with him that morning, he was so excited that he had done something good and he wasn't just throwing some shit out there. You know, and in one way, it was almost like Elvis in the movies. You know, there were movies that Elvis really had huge promise in, but then they ended up pouring him out like they hoard George out. And um, so that's why I really did believe he hadn't been drinking. And then, of course, it came out that he had been drinking and that was just a whole press I nightmare. I always knew he was drinking... And they, they hung his car on the side of 65 on this huge crane, the smashed up um, car. Oh, everybody loved George. President Bush, I used to send all, both sets of Bushes, his records. Uh, and, you know, everybody was devastated that the possum was dying. But, and, you know, my approach always to any of these kinds of things were... Um, you know, you're you're trying to do, you know, damage control. 
it's better to find some version of the truth that you can shape uh, because the truth is always going to come out and then it just becomes a matter of shaping it. And, you know, at the time that I denied he was drinking, I truly believed that. And so I didn't feel like I was misleading people because when I found out he had been drinking, then I copped to that too pretty quickly. Uh, because, I mean, certainly in this day and age, you know, it's a whole different time with, uh, you know, the Internet and social media and, and um, camera phones and all that. Uh, it would have been, you know, it must be a nightmare to go through it. No, I, there was no real, you know, blowback for me for, um, you know, misleading people on whether George was, was drinking her or client. not. Well, and, you know, my reputation had always been for honesty. Uh, so most people believed me when I said he hadn't been drinking. But they, you know, they believed me also that I, you know, I truly did believe that at the time. And we didn't know what the alcohol test was for, you know, after that first, you know, hurdle of uh, defending him because people automatically went to the fact that he had been drinking. Um, so, you know, within an hour, you don't know what, whether he had been or he hadn't been. So the whole tabloid situation in Nashville at the time, again, it was like before social media, you know, was so uh, rampant, but uh, the Inquirer and the Star and most of those magazines didn't really cover a lot of country people. But they they had... They weren't big enough. Sneaking into his room, to but that was different himself. because that was you know George Jones dying. But by and large, it wasn't like you had a ton of tabloid press, you know, snooping and trying to do things on most of the situations. You know, um, you just had you had a lot of country music press, and most of them knew George. They knew me, and uh, you know, people were more upset thinking that they were going to lose him than whether he was drinking or not. And then, you know, when he was able to, he, you know, he copped to the fact that he had been drinking and that he had made a big mistake. And <laughs> Then he was supposed to go to rehab, but he never went. He was like Amy Winehouse. You know, when I lived in New York and, uh, you know, working with uh, big mainstream stars, there was constantly tabloid arguments and, and situations, you know, um, there wasn't really much you could do about it. You just sort of, you know, went through it because it was almost impossible to sue and win without, you know, opening yourself up to everything. I remember we launched the uh, Elton John Yellow Brick Road project and we did a big party at Studio 54. And you talk about paparazzi nightmares. You know, that was just, you know, the Studio 54 thing was crazy anyhow. Elton John was like at the height of his success and um, there would be hundreds and hundreds of photographers, you know, in your face and trying to move them back. And when I represented Alexander Gudinov, who was a Russian ballet dancer who had defected and he was also an actor, he lived with Jacqueline Bissett, who was a big um, Hollywood actress. Movie star. A real movie star, you know, in the old sense of the word. And them moving around New York was always just a nightmare of paparazzi. But, you know, the secret to the whole paparazzi thing is really that you make a friend. And, you know, if you have one of them that... that because on the one hand, everybody wants to be in the columns. And on the other hand, you know, they want to control the narrative. And if you have a good photographer that you're chummy with, 
then you can, you know, that's the really the only shot you have at controlling it. But that was a pretty weird situation. I'm trying to think what other things we did. Uh, well, I sort of already told the story about Ricky Van Shelton being thrown off the Opry yes. um, stage. And, you know, the thing is that in Nashville, the paparazzi weren't the problem. It's all the country press. But by and large, you know, they, they are very nice. and They were very nice. And it wasn't that, you know, harsh, Who? critical edge. The country music press that, yeah. were, that lived in Nashville during that time. They, they were. They weren't really looking to... Um, Eviscerate anyone. I wish they were back. Bob Allen, Bob Paxton, Dolly, what was it, Carlisle, all these people that were, you know, so... And they liked the artists, too. Well, because they also had uh, personal relationships. Most, you know, celebrities are not personally friends with, you know... The whole, in, you know, the media that covers their particular part of the industry in Nashville, and particularly back then, it was so touchy feely, and everybody hung out. And we were also representing Willie when he got busted uh, with pot in his car. But then again, you know, the press loves Willie, so you know, you know, and the police loved Willie. And you know, the, when they brought him to the uh, station, they apologized, and you know, the the. Uh, police chief or whatever they would have in that area of, you know, that town or whatever, was mad that Willie had been arrested for that. But nonetheless, that was a big Didn't press thing. did they find thing. Willie sleeping in his car? Yeah, he had been playing poker with uh, some friends, you know, a, a distance away from where he lived. And it was late at night and he was tired, so he just pulled over on the side of the road and did what a good person should do if they're too tired and and went to sleep. And they came up to the car and he told them where the pot was because they saw in the ashtray a joint and that he had a bag under the seat or something. Imagine Willie surprised to wake up and near the police. And I said, well, why did you tell him where it was? And he said, what, I'm going to have my Mercedes ripped into pieces while they searched the car over a bag of weed? <laughs> yeah, Willie, you know, Willie's had an extraordinary career. He also had that whole thing with the IRS. Yeah, that was how I met him, but that was it. And he, you know, he had a very interesting team of people working for him. And his manager is a good friend of ours, too. And maybe one of the best managers in the music business as far as taking, you know, Willie and working with him and having Willie turn out to be probably the biggest star in country music. Then the only other thing I can think of is Travis Tritt and Billy Ray Cyrus, which was during Country Radio Seminar. And Billy Ray was exploding with achy, breaky heart. And Travis said something, you know, during fanfare, they all did press, you know, interviews and things like that. And he said something about uh, how Billy Ray was reducing country music to just swiveling hips or something like that. He did. He was just wild with and poor Billy Ray. It just blew up into a huge thing because it went out on AP. Like, I think maybe that's who he had been talking to. So it broke very big and very quickly. And Nancy Russell uh, worked with me at that time, and she worked with Travis. So she pretty much had to uh, deal with it more so than I. But I, as the head of the company, and, and I had great relationships with the press, had to get into it. 
But I don't think it was anything that was ever really resolved between uh, Travis and Billy Ray. Some media people dusted over to the office when they found out that Travis and Billy Ray were there and, you know, that they could be having an altercation. No, Billy Ray wasn't there. Yes, he was. No. Yes, he was. At the office? Yeah, he was there with Travis and that's what the whole thing was. No, Travis talked about Billy Ray in an interview. I think maybe even his video came on air, or, uh, came on TV or something, but they weren't there together. You call that little Nancy Russell and ask her to <laughs> tell you that Bill, maybe Billy Ray wasn't at the it office. Wasn't that there. would have been a bigger deal. I didn't represent Billy Ray, so why would he have been there? I thought he came and talked to you, though, didn't no, he? No, I got to know him later, and I ended up really liking him. He's a really smart guy. And I knew, in fact, I can remember the first time I heard Achy Breaky Heart driving home. I can thinking, remember this too. This is a huge I was fucking with you. hit. And it was a huge hit. Remember, and I brought Joe Thomas in to see the video on TV. I said, you just cannot believe this song, what it's going to do. But I people know. were really mean to, to Billy Ray. You know, forget the tabloid press and damage control, you know, from the media. The villains and all of these stories are really the radio guys because they're the ones that um, do the worst damage for what they may think. And Billy Ray was such a nice guy. He wasn't negative about anybody. He didn't have bad things to say. And he's really smart. He's one of the smartest guys I talked to in terms of, you know, the, his career and the business and, you know, what was going on and all that. And I remember, you know, you remember too, going and having uh, hamburgers or something with Miley when she was, she was just, a just little you know, twerp. like six, seven years old. But, but she, she was so smart. You knew that she was going to be a superstar. She was destined for superstardom. And she is just so talented as a singer and as an actress and as everything. She is just really special. But there was a situation. It wasn't like a press situation, but it was sort of a press situation. So I get a call at the office from a press person asking me for comments about Randy Travis's upcoming wedding that weekend. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, he's getting married. And I said, he's not getting married. And they said, um, it turned out that the story was that there was this girl that lived there who was going to Belmont College in Nashville and that she had told her family that she had this relationship for the last year with Randy. And when she would be home, she would get flowers from Randy Travis and she would be on the phone all the time saying that she was talking to Randy and, and you know, that they got engaged. And of course her parents said, you know, we want to meet him and, you know, the neighbors and, you know, Randy was, you know, really hot at that time. And um, they sent out invitations to the wedding, which was going to be in that big church out by um, uh, the Opryland Hotel. And they had booked that church, and all these people from the town had bought airline tickets and had booked hotel rooms at the Opryland Hotel. And all these people were coming in for the wedding. And I said, they're not getting married. This is, you know, I've never heard about this. And trust me, you know, I'm with Randy every single day of my life, and he's not getting married. So it came to pass that that... The next day, or the day after the next day, I have this uh, message on the machine at the office when I get there, and it's this girl sounding really weird saying that you got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them, and I'm folding. 
and it turned out that her her mother came, you know, for the to get her prepared for the wedding, and the girl has to admit to her mother that she didn't even know Randy. Meanwhile, they've spent you know tens of thousands of dollars on you know arrangements for a big wedding, and all these people have spent all this money on plane tickets. And their solution to this whole thing was that they were going to commit suicide together, the mother and the daughter. And they took pills and they didn't die. They, uh, uh, you know, lived. But it was just like the most bizarre thing because this girl had such a fantasy life going on. And a whole, you know, all of her friends and family and neighbors all thought it was true. And, you know, you have to wonder, but she kept, you know, explaining to them that Randy's career was so busy and he was on tour and, you know, he was sorry. But, you know, she would send gifts to the family and sign Randy's name. And all these people thought it was true. Isn't that wild? Well, it is disturbing in a way, but, you know. And it turned out that this girl used to go by his office on, on 16th and would leave a rose on the car, you know, which we later found out, you know, when you start putting the whole story together. And it was just, you know, she had this total fascination. She believed in this other, you know, life. And she left such a weird message because, you know, that was the only way she knew to get to Randy. And it was like, you got to know when to hold him. Did he ever find out? when to fold him. Yeah, of course he did. Was that the one where you were running into the place and running out the door? No, there was another. He had a fanatical fan that um, another woman that this just, so funny. you know, was obsessed with him. And, you know, we had uh, relationships with, you know, certain police in Nashville. So um, it turned out that this woman was like quite crazy. And we were flying out to someplace, you know, on tour or something. And so we were going to the airport and this uh, we had to change cars. <laughs> like three times on the way to the airport like is you know we'd get on the highway and get off the highway and change cars and get there and trying to get to the gate and to get boarded on this plane before this crazy woman uh could find randy and we spotted her down the uh, concourse and she was at an empty uh gate trying to access the computer to find out what plane randy was on uh so, you know, I think that's pretty crazy. I mean, fuck, these fans, and I don't know, you know, I know that, like, uh, country fans are crazy. I wonder what, I'm sure pop fans are equally as crazy, and hip-hop fans. But it's weird, what you know, how people can just create a whole fantasy life and uh, truly believe it. But the amazing thing was that this woman's mother... Went along with it. And but was going to so commit suicide with her. Yeah, she just didn't know how she was going to face, you know, her friends. I know you have a real look of consternation on your face. <laughs> Shocked by the depths of depravity that some fans will go to. And now it's time for the Music City Myth. Our listeners submit questions and Evelyn and I try to answer them to the best of our ability. Here's the question. Are Dolly and her longtime friend Judy lovers? This question has been bandied around for years. Truthfully, I don't think that that's true. Dolly's been married to her husband for, you know, 30 or 40 years and Judy is her devoted friend. 
for years, people thought that Evelyn and I were lovers. And when we went out on the road, they would say, oh, do you want one room or two? Um, when women are really close, they misinterpret it. And I don't think that, Do I think Dolly loves men and I think men love Dolly. And I think that's the answer. Thanks for listening. You be sure to subscribe and we'll be sure to catch you off guard. So light one up and lighten up. Tune in next week when we discuss the guys, the various men that we've worked with in country music and that became a very big part of our lives. So share and tell your friends. Then rate, review, and subscribe. Don't be quiet about this. We need you to tell everyone because why is someone going to listen to this? No one has any idea who that we are. So it's up to you to get us known. It has to be a viral thing. It has to be a, uh, you know, word of mouth thing because we're putting our faith in your hands. We are. For more information on the podcast, please visit www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com. Shady Ladies of Music City is recorded and produced in Nashville, Tennessee, and is presented by Monument Records. Executive producers are Jason Owen, Shane McAnally, and Katie McCartney. Our producer is Sarah Tahilly. Our theme song is written and performed by Robert Shavers. He is also our engineer and editor.